I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part seven in the series, Practicing the Way, Simplicity. Every disciplined way of life inevitably narrows our decisions, the way we choose to live. Saying yes to one thing means saying no to another. You can call this discipline, and it is, but the way of Jesus also calls this simplicity. In Frank Herbert's beloved sci-fi classic, Dune, wow, a yeah already? Who said that? Oh, I looked uh, uh, as a reaction to Peter and his right away said, someone else, not, not me. In Dune, it is said of the people of the planet Arrakis, the freemen were supreme in that quality the ancients described as the self-imposed delay between desire for a thing and the act of reaching out to grasp that thing. I love this because the idea of deliberately delayed gratification is apparently the stuff of science fiction. Who disciplines themselves to impose a delay between wanting something and then reaching out to grasp it? Apparently a fictional race of desert-dwelling space people. And it still sounds like science fiction now. If you have your Bibles, turn to the new, uh, in the New Testament to a letter we call Galatians chapter 5. Like Cam said, feel free to use your phone if you don't have an analog Bible and feel free to consult the table of contents if you're not sure where to find Galatians. You do a lot of talking about a thing for a few weeks and the information starts to pile up. Lots of advice and instructions and data and stories. It's not a bad thing, it's actually crucial. But depending on your personality, all the promising information could set you up for unrealistic expectations. I would prefer not to do that. You guys know this. Heck, how often do I remind everyone of their inevitable deaths? It's true, by the way, we are at some point going to die. But that's perspective, y'all. It's perspective. That's not to bum anyone out. Healthy. My point is, I am not that uh, go-getter, optimistic, you-can-do-anything you kind of personality, to a fault, I suppose. But I care deeply about the integrity of the things that I say up here. I don't want to ever be phony or flowery or promise you something that I don't believe myself. And I believe in adapting and implementing the lifestyle and spiritual rhythms of Jesus into our context, even and especially the really difficult ones. Simplicity has been massively formational for me, for my wife Abby, for my family. But even if you minimize your possessions, which is something that we talked about last week and began to practice in our communities even if you learn to be more thoughtful with the way that you speak, even if you begin thoughtful modes of practicing justice and generosity with your finances, even then, simplicity is about more than wardrobes and wallets. That, that should be abundantly clear by now. From the Old Testament to the New, into the early church of Jesus and down throughout church history, disciples of Jesus have recognized the necessity of restricted gratification or what you might call the simplicity of pleasure, or sobriety as simplicity. And here's why this seems misleading. It seems like 
we're mostly talking about asceticism. Asceticism is a lifestyle of severe and typically religious self-discipline. And asceticism, if you know that term, it typically brings to mind images of miserable monks or nuns or the Amish, people who have sworn off sex and electricity. Maybe it seems impressive from a certain angle, but mostly to the modern Westerner, it seems absurd. And that's because the world in which we live is a world of indulgence, a world of you do you, of hashtag do what makes you happy. And we, in particular, most of us, live in the greater Portland metro area, where the idea is not about restricted anything. It's about more and more and more. You like coffee? How about 1,500 coffee shops per city quadrant, each of them with near-identical branding and interior design, because this is also where aesthetic originality goes to die, apparently. Or, do you like beer, they ask. We have an entire subculture for you. In fact, it's less of a subculture. It's just culture. Or, do you like food? We have that as well. And, of course, none of this can be done without your phone sewn to your hands, captured in vivid detail as you pose with donuts and lattes, a chorus of camera shutters soundtracking every new restaurant and bar. At least they were, and they will be again sometime soon. Last week, we talked about the way that in the New Testament, Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, and said, if we have food and shelter, we will be content with that. That's not our world. Our world is more like if we have hundreds of rotating options for food, coffee, beer, and novelty entertainment, accompanied by homogenized Instagram comrade-approved designer fashion, we will be momentarily contented with that until we are not, and then we will need more. So any hint of asceticism or of self-denial sounds to the modern ear like a, a far-flung radicalism. And then its only hope of catching on is the rapid moving current of trends. Why did dozens of books and articles and documentaries and podcasts about minimalism proliferate over the span of a few short years? The answer is because it became trendy. And the trend manual often smacks of individualism. Modern Westerners breathe the air of individualism, steeped from birth in a worldview that values and highlights personal freedom and autonomy and expression above any kind of group identity. And that makes consumers out of us. Our desires and our needs and our stories exist in a vacuum independent of our families and communications and, I mean, communities and generations, and which history demonstrates is a foolish and destructive way to go through life. Think about the way that more and more young people are becoming increasingly aware of America's long, noxious history of racism, which is a good thing. But the strange irony overlooked by those who are understandably infuriated by the other side of the aisle, those desperate to de-emphasize or to explain away American racism, is that one of the things that keeps racism alive and well is individualism. The right is using a rule book beloved to the left. You do you. The effort to somehow exist independent of your community and your history and your heritage for better or for worse. Individualism is the American creed and it seeped into the minimalism trend at a popular level. Why embrace minimalism? Because it'll make you happier. It'll make your super cool house look even super cooler. It'll reduce your fretful anxiety over your stuff. And don't get me wrong, these 
are elements of good things. There are truth. Uh, there is truth in some of those things. But Jesus' teaching on simplicity demonstrates zero concern for individualism. In the story of the Bible, there just is no paradigm for individualism. Entire families and nations, even generations of people understand their identity as woven into the group or into the tribe, the people, the story. Simplifying excess demonstrates concern for the other. Yes, Jesus is after your joy and your happiness, but you are not an island. Why embrace simplicity? To love other people. Simplicity of possessions teaches us the way of justice. It makes quiet examples of us as we lead others in a way of quiet contentment. Simplicity of finances frees us up to give our money away, to demonstrate radical self-sacrificial love. Simplicity of speech directs our attention to others when our tongue would move us inwardly, selfishly. And simplicity of pleasure brings all these things together by decluttering the mind and the soul so that we can become active channels of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what's at stake. Excess can sabotage the potential of your apprenticeship to Jesus. And you do have, every single one of you, great potential designed, hardwired by the God of the universe himself. And yet there are things that can cut that potential short. So let's look at a famous New Testament warning in Galatians chapter 5. And the Galatians is a letter written by someone called Paul who, after this amazing encounter with Jesus, went from violently persecuting the church to growing the church and writing most of the New Testament himself. So not bad. Not a bad transition for Paul. See, the way of Jesus began amongst first century Jews, but it was always intended to grow beyond one ethnic group and spread amongst all people. But when that finally happened, some Jewish disciples of Jesus began to insist that these new Gentile or non-Jewish disciples of Jesus adhere to the strict Jewish laws of the Old Testament. And Paul, who was once a staunch proponent of that same law, now believed that it was ridiculous to ask disciples of Jesus to keep it up. So for the first few chapters of Galatians, he argues that strict adherence to the Torah or the law has failed to reconcile humanity to God. But where the Torah failed, this Messiah called Jesus has finally succeeded, which is great news. Then in chapter 5, Paul addresses an obvious pushback to his argument. The argument is this. If these new Christians don't keep the Torah, his opponents might ask, how will they know the right way to live? What are the guidelines? And Paul's answer is both simple and profound. They will know by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, Paul says, is how Jesus is with his disciples always and how he is building from them a new humanity. But, Paul says, there's a word of warning here as well. So, finally, with all that set up, look at Galatians 5, beginning with verse 13. Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. In other words, you're not bound by the law, the Torah, Paul says. So does that mean there are no longer any guidelines for right living amongst disciples of Jesus? No, keep reading. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Now the flesh, which is something that we've discussed at length elsewhere, is that 
broken, disordered part of your will and your desire, the part of you that is bent away from God and drawn to things that destroy you and other people. Don't indulge that aspect of your person, Paul says. And then he goes on in verse 13. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, the whole Torah, is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Now remember, we are not the ones who define the specific outworking of love your neighbor. We're bad at it. Jesus is the one who explained God's paradigm for love in the Sermon on the Mount. So Paul is teaching out of the rhetoric of Jesus. In any case, without a Torah, without the Old Testament law, what do we do to combat the flesh, that broken part of us? Paul goes on in verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So listen, this is the key. So that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Messiah Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. How can you tell when one is operating in the flesh, as it were? It's obvious, Paul writes. There's a list of things, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, and the list goes on before, before Paul warns that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, lots of people read that as an eschatological thing, meaning Paul is saying, if you do these bad things now, then you won't get to go to heaven when you die. And while the New Testament does have a lot to say about ways of living that have eternal consequences, ways of living now that affect the age to come, that's not the primary thing that Paul is addressing here. Paul means kingdom of God the way that Jesus meant kingdom of God, as in God's inbreaking rule and reign in the here and now, a way of life marked by peace and goodness and self-sacrificial love now. If you operate in the flesh then by design, you cannot operate in the Spirit. If you do what you want at a base level, you will not do what God wants, and you will not experience the good rule of God over your life and your family and your community and so on. This is what will sabotage a rule of life well-lived. This is what will derail your quest for spiritual formation, stunt your maturity, end your potential, and, quote, keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. And notice there are things on Paul's list that describe abuses of things that are not themselves inherently evil. Modes of sexuality, for example, or drunkenness is another one. Many of these things can immediately be recognized as what we would call vices, vices of the flesh, habits and behaviors that corrupt our character 
and the world around us. And language like this, I know, sounds all fire and brimstone, but virtually everyone believes in a difference between good and evil, and that some things are one or the other. What many people don't like, on the other hand, at least in the post-Enlightenment Western world, is the suggestion that this idea of good things and bad things is objective. That is, it's not really up for interpretation. They are simply good things and evil things. Much of the modern American ethos doesn't take kindly to the idea that evil doesn't vary from person to person. In other words, evil is just evil. The more popular idea is, hey, it depends on you. It depends on what you believe which immediately becomes an unresolvable tangle of contradictions. Everyone believes in some kind of objective truth because we can't functionally carry out any other worldview. I'll sometimes have coffee with someone who disagrees with this or that teaching from Jesus or the Bible, and they'll tell me that they just can't stomach any kind of objective truth statements that make someone out to be wrong for what they believe or how they live. And so the solution to this dilemma in their minds is for the church to accept that they are wrong for what they believe and to change the way that they live. We all think there are right and wrong ways of understanding the universe and how one ought to live in it. Paul thinks it's obvious what differentiates the outworking of the flesh from the outworking of the spirit. And he begins with sexual immorality, meaning anything and everything that deviates from God's design of human sexuality as something that takes place exclusively between a man and a woman in a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant. And this paradigm is well represented and significantly reinforced from cover to cover of the Bible story. So anything not that steps outside of God's will and is led away by the flesh in Paul's mind. Think of the excess of porn, for example, the idea that God's design for human sexuality is so decidedly narrow that a better way to enjoy human sexuality is the objectification of lots of strangers. Many of them, we know, are trafficked as slaves, reducing them to objects. Few blind spots are more glaring. Saturday Night Live has become a bastion of progressive ideology, using its comedy, in particular the, the Weekend Update, which is the last remaining consistently funny thing on the show, I think. Um, They use this ideology to lambast racism and sexism and culture and politics, often to great ends. But last year, I remembered specifically, this stood out to me, SNL joked that Pornhub would become the great unifier of those in quarantine, and they depicted smiling women and men and couples gathering around screens to enjoy images that in study after study after study have been shown to promote misogyny and racism and modern slavery. So the young social justice activist who claims fervor in the name of feminism or racial reconciliation, but who privately flocks to porn sites, they are raging hypocrites. And Paul's list includes sexual fantasy or sleeping with or fooling around with a boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance or, or failing to cultivate and work toward consistent intimacy and sexual connection between spouses. Paul even has to list Orgies specifically, because he's writing to a different place in time. I'd like to say this goes without saying, but honestly, few things surprise me anymore. So please note Paul's inclusion of orgies on this list. The point is that sexuality outside of God's design is so powerful that it is destructive. And much of it is, in the simplistic sense anyway, it is just excess of God's design. It is a perversion of God's design. Sexuality is good. God made it up. 
but excess perversion of it is bad, not only bad, but destructive. These things will destroy the structure and function of your discipleship in the immediate sense, and in the long-term sense, they will destroy you, as will their outward expressions of impurity and debauchery, and so will idolatry, which is the tendency of humans to take a position that should belong to God only, and then appointing someone or something other than God in his place. Most of us get that idea. But again, here we have the idea of good things in excess. This happens to us when we live for our careers or our ambitions, when we attempt to draw life and identity from things that we have or from appearances or from a fabricated veneer of ourselves that we project online, or when we attempt to draw life and identity from good things like a spouse, or our children, or a ministry, or good things that we've done. It happens when we clutter our days with such urgency to do, crowding every hour with activity for us or our friends or our kids, that we refuse to carve out even a stretch of minutes to sit in silence before God and be present to Him, to His voice, to His will over our lives. It happens in excess of things in general, good or bad or neither, when we give more attention and focus and devotion to a touchscreen than to prayer or to the Scriptures or to the Spirit of God in us. Things from which we can derive a sense of pleasure, some of them good, but when things you love are not in the right order, or when no restriction is set on your intake of that pleasure, your spiritual formation will flounder, or worse, it will topple altogether. Our ability to follow Jesus well presupposes a deliberate narrowing of pleasure or simplifying of it. What I mean by that is that there are a great many things by which our brains can do their chemical thing and award us a sense of enjoyment. And on that long list, you can find all sorts of things that might be good or okay in moderation, as well as very bad, destructive things. And following Jesus is not unlike any other disciplined way of life in that it requires a deliberate narrowing of pleasures. In the same way that athletes and bodybuilders choose not to just eat anything they want or to narrow their schedules around certain disciplines, the disciple of Jesus deliberately restricts their indulgence of pleasure for the sake of competent discipleship. Which makes Paul's next item on the list an interesting one. The Greek word that my Bible translates as witchcraft is pharmakeia, and it can be translated as the use of medicine or drugs or spells. Now, some people assume that the connection between drugs and spirituality originated in the 60s or amongst primitive tribes of people. But the idea is as old as the New Testament and much older. And interestingly, the New Testament never denies the spiritual reality of drugs and shamanistic practices. It simply argues that these things are spiritual, inherently so, but they act as doorways to the kingdom of darkness, or what the Bible calls Satan and demons. They never lead to the kingdom of God or to his spirit. There's been a lot of talk about drugs in our world as of late with the legalization of marijuana a few years ago and the recent decriminalization of drugs in Oregon. Drugs aren't a modern invention, obviously, and neither is the use of natural and unnatural things for spiritual purposes. But in the Bible story, from cover to cover, the way that one pursues and attains intimacy with God, 
the way that one achieves spiritual formation, the, one, the way that one achieves healing and wisdom and maturity and spiritual insight is always via sobriety, which is why Paul doubles down and includes drunkenness on the same list of vices that sabotage discipleship. In the Old and New Testament, any intoxicated state is a barrier to God, not a gateway to God. I can scarcely overstate how clear and consistent this thread runs through Scripture. The New Testament describes intoxicated states as indecent, as belonging to the brokenness of a fallen world, as leading to debauchery, even lists unrepentant intoxication amongst the major barriers to the kingdom of God. The New Testament consistently upholds sobriety as the way that disciples of Jesus are unique, the very means by which we set our minds on Jesus. Sobriety is how we resist the devil. Thus, intoxication is explicitly and consistently prohibited throughout the entire Bible, which also condemns the effects of intoxication, hallucinations and addiction, loss of judgment towards sin, loss of physical control, loss of wisdom, loss of financial control, embracing foolishness. And please listen to me on this one. All of that includes everything from socially acceptable behaviors like getting tipsy or drunk on alcohol or using marijuana with THC to get high to the more serious sounding stuff like abusing prescription medications or you know, eating magic mushrooms or doing cocaine or whatever it might be. I've been uh, straight edge my whole life. I've never even had alcohol, let alone anything that required decriminalization. So I sound, I realize to many, very homeschooly when I talk about uh, drugs and alcohol, though I wasn't homeschooled, believe it or not. But this is important because we, as a church and as disciples of Jesus, we are not anti-science or anti-medicine. There is a place for at least nuanced discussion about legal medicines prescribed by doctors in trustworthy clinical settings to treat disorders of the mind and body, yes. But even then, Even then, the disciple of Jesus is to seek wisdom and discernment and the community of God's people, the Holy Spirit, never default to drugs. When I first arrived in the Pacific Northwest and into Portland's beer enthusiast culture some 10 years ago or more now, I was shocked to learn that alleged disciples of Jesus just get drunk. It's part of the culture here. I'm not talking about a healthy, disciplined relationship that many disciples of Jesus have with alcohol. I'm talking about getting tipsy and weird and drunk. It's a thing. People hang out, they drink, they get all weird and talkative, their eyes get all funny, they have to hand their keys to a friend, and then they go to church on Sunday. They do this in public, they make jokes about it, they talk about it openly, completely defying the seriousness with which the Bible condemns drunkenness. And the Bible takes this so seriously, not because the authors of Scripture were prudish or vanilla or anti-science. It's because compromised sobriety is one avenue the devil uses to destroy disciples of Jesus. I think of 1 Peter 5, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. People have asked, why I have such a a hardcore stance on drugs or weed or getting drunk, psychedelics, whatever. That's why. Because the devil is looking for someone to devour. Way back in our 
Fighting the World, the Flesh and the Devil series, we argued that the devil's strategy is to use deceitful ideas that pander to our brokenness and that have become normalized in a broken society. This is the devil's primary go-to strategy of deceit and sabotage, which includes casual, occasional drunkenness, the normalization of getting high on weed or edibles or using psychedelics as spiritual gateways. These things are, to my estimation anyway, one of the clearest examples of this strategy thriving. And despite any accusations of fundamentalism or not getting with the times, I am more than happy to take Peter's warning very seriously. Now, maybe some of you are, like me, thinking of yourselves as conveniently secure in this particular area because getting drunk or using marijuana is not really your thing. But you know well enough the same thing that I do, that there are other excesses that enslave, pleasures that are difficult to restrict. One of them, nearly all of us carry around in our pockets. And that efficient little device can destroy you as well. Other substances are used in secret in private web browsers. Or some of us use experiences or relationships or schedules or career. And the excess of pleasure distracts us, numbs us, effectively silencing our connection to God's Spirit. But for others, it might be the pleasure of quiet, the pleasure of rest in excess that becomes laziness and aimlessness. And some of us simply idle through life, avoiding reality by doing not much of anything good or bad. Nine to five, eat, sit around, watch TV, sleep, repeat. Maybe go to work, come back, all in a cycle of empty nothingness, not connected to God or His Spirit, which is another mode of the flesh. And when we operate in the flesh rather than in God's spirit, we fall away to Paul's other warnings. Hatred, we sow seeds of discord and jealousy. We're more vulnerable to fits of rage and selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, and the like. These things are enemies of the way of Jesus. Porn, digital addiction, getting drunk or high, or compromised sobriety of any kind, anger, resentment, selfish ambition, distractions. And simplicity or sobriety the restriction of excess, in and of themselves, they do not keep these creeping enemies at bay. Sobriety simply facilitates something more important, which is the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul concludes his letter by contrasting the new way of being human with the old and broken way. Look down one more time at Galatians 5. At the end of verse 21, Paul writes of the old humanity, I warn you as I did before, those who live like this, all those modes of the flesh, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Those who belong to Messiah Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The habits of the old humanity, lust, intoxication, rage, all that, they dehumanize people and destroy relationships and communities. Many of you know this, sadly, from firsthand exposure or experience. I have seen it over and over and over again. 
The Old Testament law expressly prohibited these things, but Jesus did more than that. He put them to death in his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead so that now when a person, any person, decides to entrust their life to Jesus as master, teacher, and king, the life of Jesus can become their life as well. And when we practice the way of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of God, we are formed and shaped by the way of Jesus over time, and this produces what Paul called the fruit of the Spirit or the outworking of the Spirit. We've talked before about the way that Many people read the, the fruits of the Spirit as a list of commands. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and so on. So you read it and think, man, I should get out there and be more loving, be more joyful, be more peaceful and so on. But the only command in the entire passage isn't to be more loving or joyful. It's to keep in step with the Spirit. That's the one command. When you keep in step with the Spirit, your life will, like a cultivated tree, produce fruit. And that fruit will be peace and love and joy and so on. But that kind of thing is anything but fast or easy. There are no shortcuts. The agrarian metaphor is a deliberate one. This symbolic fruit is like actual fruit in that it must be grown and cultivated over time. How? In Paul's words, live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey says of this text, this requires intentionality. We have to learn how to prune off our old habits and cultivate new ones. As we do so, we find ourselves carried along by the Spirit of Jesus as, as the Spirit of Jesus as Jesus reshapes our minds and hearts and makes us into people who love God and others. Why go through all this work to unpack the practice of simplicity over the last few weeks. It is certainly not just to declutter our homes or to follow a fad or to make your apartment look nicer. Simplicity can become for us, like all spiritual disciplines, the means by which we keep in step with God's Spirit. By knowingly embracing Jesus' teaching on simplicity in our lives, whether we are wealthy or decidedly less so, whether we have very much or very little, that's what this has all been about. People tend to misunderstand simplicity as a way of life that makes good things out to be bad things, which makes sense. There's been a lot of that in church history. Sadly, it doesn't take a historian to point out times and places when the effort to simplify pleasure became an aversion to pleasure altogether as if enjoying life in the world and the things in it were somehow themselves wrong, which is where you get all kinds of wacky unhealthy views about art and food and sex down throughout the Christian tradition. That doesn't make any sense. God designed us to experience joy. He wired the complex chemical reactions of our brains to accommodate joy. But we are broken, and so is the world. And many corrupt the freedom of Jesus twisting and mangling it so that it becomes a license for another drink or another purchase or more and more. The simplicity of pleasure is about recognizing that though God has in mind for us to experience joy and pleasure in life, we concede that his understandings of both are greater than our own. Though we are well convinced that more will give us happiness, Jesus says otherwise. 
And he is our teacher. He is our master. He is the Lord. We obviously need each other for this. We need people to love us enough to remind us what we sometimes forget and what we often lose sight of. This is the way to life. These other things lead to death. That only happens in the accountability of community, which is why following Jesus is always and only done in community. Each of you has massive potential to impact the world for the sake of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. It's this idea that when God's will is done, rather than our will, rather than Satan's will, there is healing and restoration and justice and kindness and peace and self-sacrificial love. Maybe you feel as though your potential is insignificant compared to some famous person or CEO or a missionary or whoever it is that seems more significant in your mind, but God simply does not measure impact the way that we do. A quiet life led by the Spirit of God, submitted to the teachings of Jesus, a life putting away the old habits in exchange for the new, this, Jesus said, will change the world. Some of you, I know, have been inspired in big ways by larger-than-life personalities, famous people known the world over for what they've done, and that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. But more of you, I believe, have been impacted in even more significant ways by a person in your life who was not famous, but who demonstrated the kindness of Jesus in their own simple pocket of the world. Someone who lived the quiet integrity of the gospel. Someone who embraced self-sacrificial love. Someone whose life was evidence of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not because they white-knuckled it and they really, really tried to be all those things, but because of their deep connection to the Spirit of God, they became over time a person of love and joy and peace. They simplified their lives around the way of Jesus. Not perfect, but in doing so, they changed your world. Could have been a friend or your mom or dad or your husband or wife, it could have been a mentor, it could have been someone who had no idea that they impacted you at all. But most of us know of a person like that or of several people like that in our own stories. So think of that person or those people for a minute. And then remember this, you have that potential in you. And God wants that for you. He's made you a certain way for that very reason. We've been talking about what makes simplicity for a disciple of Jesus unique among the minimalism trends and design aesthetics. One of those things is how hardcore the idea is, how it absolutely flies in the face of the status quo. But really, simplicity is an aspect of every disciplined way of life in which an apprentice works toward mastery. We've been talking for years now about the way that Jesus' way of life requires practice. It's why we do the practices at all. And we compare this way of life to, you know, a concert pianist, I think I said earlier, or an Olympic athlete, a ballerina, a black belt, stressing the reality of practice as one of the primary means by which we move forward in spiritual formation. But practice is only one crucial dimension of the lifestyle of the kung fu master or the ballet dancer. And simplicity is another one for all of them. To give the entirety of your life to something 
requires that you deny yourself certain pleasures or luxuries or purchases, even desires and relationships. And we don't typically accuse the master pianist or Olympic athlete of being less human for their self-denial. But the world is often unkind to those who practice simplicity and self-denial in their finances or sexuality or pleasure when it is done in the name of Jesus. And as usual, what the world says will rob us of life is the very thing that Jesus says will give us life and the life that is truly life. Which means that all of us who follow Jesus have to ask ourselves important questions again and again and again. Ask yourself, what excess needs simplifying in your life in order that you might follow Jesus well? Is it food or alcohol or is it the way that you use your time? Is it a device? Is it a habit? And then ask yourself, what will you do about it? Who will you ask to hold you accountable? This week's practice and the remainder of our practices around the ancient spiritual discipline of simplicity will be up at vancity.church slash simplicity. I am suspicious of all modes of discipleship that do not take self-denial very seriously. Those who suspect Jesus would emphasize their freedom to do as they please and be whoever they want. No serious apprentice and any demanding craft or trade would accept this contradiction. And our master boldly proclaimed that the prerequisite to discipleship is self-denial and death. Not so that you will be diminished, but so that you will flourish. I assume that this message will be alienating to many. Jesus did too. Narrowing the channels of pleasure so that we say no to excess and yes to sober-mindedness is not a way of limiting who we are. It's the way we will embrace the full scope of our potential to be empowered by God's Spirit and to step into our God-given calling. Simplifying and limiting pleasure is a disciplined gesture that says, the way I order my decisions and days and priorities will reflect my love of Jesus and his calling on my life. And I will stand and fight that which seeks to enslave. Simplicity is a statement that says to Jesus our King that though everything in this world is vying for my attention, my time, my heart, excessively so, these are unforgiving masters and I want to give those things to you. And if this means simplifying my own pleasure in order to make room in my heart and my mind and in the hours of the day for the Spirit of God and His leading over our lives, then let us do that together. Let's pray and ask that God's Spirit would empower us to follow Jesus well. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.